Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, May 21st, 2021. I'm just going to read a sample headline uh, in the New York Times today because I think it's going to dovetail into what uh, our first topic of conversation will be with my distinguished guest. And here's the headline. Facing pressure, Israel and Hamas accept ceasefire more than 250 killed, mostly civilians. Egypt mediates an agreement. Peace in the Middle East. <laughs> Irony of ironies. Anyway, that's the headline in today's paper. If you're listening to this podcast five years from now, let's hope the world exists five years from now. Now, without further ado, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. Distinguished guest, take it away. I'm Ramana Hussein. I'm an assistant metro editor at the Chicago Sun-Times. The Ramana Hussein of the Ramana Rundown. Now, every other Friday uh, on the Ben Jarofsky show dropped on Saturdays. Uh, Ramana, you and I, we talked uh, today to do with the pre-show prep. Yes, there's pre-show prep for Ramana Hussein Rundown. You folks just think we were winging it? Uh, and uh, we spent about 15 minutes talking about this one topic just to prep it. And um, so let's just get right off uh, at, the, at the top. So much to discuss. It's really the, the violence... That heavy duty violence erupted like within the between visits to the show, Ramana. You know what I'm saying? It's like this thing happened in the two weeks since you've been on the show. Uh, Israel was raining bombs on Gaza uh, for most of last week, uh, and yesterday they struck a deal. Uh, so much to talk about on this, but you uh, let's just start with your just general thoughts about everything of the last week, which you've been going through, which you've been reading these stories over the last week. Go ahead, Ramana. Yeah, I mean. From my the reports I've read, I mean, and I saw the, you know, everybody that listens to the show probably knows I'm Muslim. And last month was um, Ramadan just finished uh, last week. And during the last 10 days of Ramadan, uh, we saw images of Israeli police going into um, Masjid al-Aqsa, which is the mosque. And it's a site where, you know, very important for Christian Jewish people um, and Muslim people. It's near that area and that, you know, there's a lot of images on social media. And I think that's what prompted um, the 
you know, the the Gaza rockets, uh, you know, Hamas had fired some rockets into the Israeli territory and then Gaza got pounded by the Israeli bombs. And um, this is obviously because of my background. This is something that, you know, the Middle East is something that has always and 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 the Israelis and the Palestinians, these are like a history that I've been following pretty much all my life. And um, I probably told, I mentioned this to you, Ben, before, and I'm sure I mentioned this on the show before, but I went to Northwest High School in Skokie, Illinois, which at the time when I went to high school had a large, large Jewish population. So um, the 70s and 80s, and pretty much for most of my life, if you said anything that was pro-Palestinian, um, a lot of people would criticize you as being anti-Semitic or supporting the terrorists. This is just from my perspective. And I felt like people got, you know, a lot of people have been saying that the cancel culture, if you said anything about the pro-Palestinians or pro pal you know, anything to support the Palestinians, you would get canceled pretty quick. And I still think that's common as we've seen this week. But, you know, I think that the narrative is shifting a little. Um, and one of the things that I always try to point out too when I do present my side when I'm talking to people about is these the Israelis and the Palestinians is that I'm not saying anything against Jewish people. There's a, I'm just specifically talking about. I think there needs to be fairness when we talk about the Middle East, and you know, many times people have been fairly criticized. Anybody who's pro-Palestinians, that doesn't mean that people who there are people who are anti-Semitic. Nobody's saying that. I'm just saying that I'm not anti-Semitic. I don't think of myself as anti-Semitic. I'm not going to say, oh, I have all these Jewish friends. Ben, obviously you're Jewish. But, you know, I I do try to be fair, but I have a pro-Palestinian bent. I don't have a problem saying that on the show. I do think the Palestinians are unfairly treated. And I think that we've been letting it pass. And we're pretty much the United States. If it wasn't for the United States, I don't think Israel would be able to do everything that it's supposed to do. I mean, you know, people call it a clash. I mean, I know there's a lot of people criticizing the media. You know, now that people are speaking out, they're saying it's not a clash because the fight, you know, the fighting isn't fair. On one side, you have all this, like, heavy-duty military of this thing called the Iron Dome, which basically is able to capture all the, you know, the rockets that Hamas is firing into. So, obviously, the, the number of Palestinians that were killed is a lot more than the Israelis. And then you probably heard, Ben, as I did, the uh, the Israel government had bombed the uh, building that housed a lot of press people, um, including the Associated Press. And that building, um, they said that Hamas, they said that they had intelligence that said Hamas was working out of that building. And it turns out, you know, our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said there's no evidence of that. And then, you know, just yesterday, we found out that this young reporter who got hired by the Associated Press um, two weeks ago. Her name was Emily Wilder. She's a young Jewish woman. She graduated um, from college in 2020. And she, while she was in college, she was part of a group that was a pro-Palestinian student group. And so these right-wingers um, had posted her tweets uh, a couple days ago. And then yesterday we found out that she got fired from her job. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, are we sure that's like the story? And she said she's pretty sure it was her pro-Palestinian tweets that got her fired. And the right wing, you know, Fox News has a story on this. And a lot of right wing politicians were pointing out, including Tom Cotton. And as Ben, as, as you like to point out, none of these individuals were Jewish people who had, you know, basically called her out. And then she got she got fired. So on Twitter... 
<laughs> on Twitter, um, this was this was the talk on Twitter this week, um, or at least yesterday. And a lot of people are tweeting things about the fact that they think it's insane that you know she was fired because of this. And you know, people are you know people are bringing up good points. So you know, there's a lot of Jewish people who do birthright, and I'm not saying anything about that. But you know, nobody ever questions anybody and their pro-Israeli stance, or whether they served in. And the IDF, nobody, nobody loses jobs because of that, or journalism jobs because of that, because, and, but, you know, if somebody says something pro-Palestinian, which we, I know we said that the conversation is changing, but this is an example, the firing of this AP reporter, this former AP reporter shows you that there's still parts of the conversation that haven't changed. So that's my two cents. Let's break it down a little bit. Number one, let me just say this. There's not a, a, a shred of anti-Semitism in Ramana Hussein. I'm just putting that out there, ladies and gentlemen. And because uh, we've been having this conversation for how many years, Ramana? Been a regular every Friday. Now every other Friday, uh, but uh, on our show. And I just, you know, I've been Jewish my whole life in America. And for the first 11 years of my life, I was, my sister and I were the only Jews. Uh, so I know anti-Semitism. Oh, I can detect it. I see it coming. I know where it comes from. I know the cold words for it and the out in the open words for it. And I can just tell you, there's not a shred of anti-Semitism in Ramana Hussein. So if she chooses, I'm just saying this, if, if, Ramana speaks about what's going on in the Middle East. She's speaking about it out of compassion for one group that has a, a heavy military edge over another group that's like captive, and they're just bombing the hell out of them. And then there's the whole issue of what to do about land that was taken from people. How are you going to adjudicate that? You know, and are you going to just continue a policy where you continue to take land? We already had this discussion, Ramana. I don't need to repeat. I just urge listeners to check out David Ferris' interview we did last week. We took the deep dive on the Middle East with a very learned scholar about this stuff. So I just had to say that. Um, but I'm glad you said the bit about there wasn't a Jew uh, who was calling for uh, Emily Wilder's uh, removal, at least the pro most prominent people. were all evangelicals from the right wing of the Republican Party who see this as a wedge issue to try to get Jewish voters away from the Democrats. This is what they're doing, folks. So if you're going to fall for this, this is what you're falling for, so that you can support a Republican just out of, like, because they've messed with your mind, and that Republican will do everything you don't want to do on any kind of political issue, be it what? Choice, environmental regulations, union organizing. I just had to say that, Romana. Um, cancel culture. Let's talk about that a little bit, Romana. Isn't that interesting? All these right-wingers and Republicans are always crying about cancel culture when anyone criticizes them. Emily Wilder gets punished for some tweet she wrote, uh, which she says she wouldn't do now. Most people, by the way, say that when they get caught, Romana just saying, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do it now. Uh, for, for when she was a kid in, uh, at Stanford, she gets fired. She's supposedly a highly qualified reporter. And... Uh, her culture was canceled. She's still a kid. But. Uh, a young woman, I should say. I just shouldn't call her a kid. So anyway, cancel culture. Talk a little bit about that, Romana. Yeah. I, first of all, before I start, I was going to say you mentioned growing up how you could sense anti-Semitism. And for me, the same thing. I can sense 
when someone's Islamophobic. And there are things that people say out in the open and nobody says anything about it. And it's totally Islamophobic, but people are okay with it. And then there's code words that people use, terrorists. And that's basically a dog whistle for Muslims. And the right wing tends to hate Muslims. So, you know, and they, they don't like Jewish people either, but I think they feel like, oh, look, less, you know, people are scared of these Muslims. So let's, you know, I think they use that as a, you know, they, like you said, they use that to gain Jewish voters. A lot of the boomers who are very, you know, they don't criticize Israel. And as we talked about this, this is more of a generational thing. You, you're seeing it kind of shift with the younger um, population, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think they feel like this is a, you know, let's use the terrorist angle. And, and it's just a, it's just a dialogue that's been used to talk about the Middle East. Like those Arabs, you know, they're crazy. They like bombing stuff. So let's bomb them. You know, it's like, let we'll stop them. It's just a language that's used. So I think that's what, I don't know, that's what we see being played here, which I always find very interesting because whenever I talk to any of my Jewish friends, our cultures are so similar. Our religions are so similar. It's 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 kind of crazy how similar a lot of our things are. Like even some of the words that we use in Arabic are very similar to the words that um, you know we say salam. You know that's the shortened version of assalamu alaikum. It's very similar to shalom, and you know we have the same dietary restrictions. Like whenever there's a Jewish holiday, we my family used to run out and get the kosher marshmallows because they had gelatin, and my mom always preferred kosher meat to regular meat. So it's just funny because our cultures and religion are very similar. And uh, so, you know, I do identify more with a lot of my Jewish friends than I do with the average, you know, Christian white American in the United States. I always thought it was kind of funny. But yeah, uh, the cancel culture that we're talking about, it's always been the same with this group. It's when you offend them, then you cancel. But the moment that you say that, you know, they're wrong and they get canceled, they don't want to get canceled. So people have been, like I said, with this issue on the Middle East, people who are pro-Palestinian have been getting canceled for years. People have lost their jobs. Um, If they said anything pro-Palestinian and they were a politician, they usually um, had to take back what they said. So people have been getting canceled for reasons a long time ago. It's just that the right is being canceled now. So now they're all getting sensitive and always talk about, oh, this cancel culture is insane. We don't need to do this cancel culture anymore. It's just that because what they believe in and what they say is being called out now, that's why they're complaining. But they've been canceling people for years. Yeah, and I would say this. Uh, I would make one clarification or take exception to one thing you said. I don't, I don't see any evidence that uh, any conservative has lost his gig because of saying something stupid and offensive. If anything, they get promoted. <laughs> I mean, Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh, Sean, I mean, uh, what's old boy's name? Sean, I'm blanking on his last name. Hannity. Yeah, Hannity. How can I forget his name? Uh, the other one whose name I'm blanking on, but I could Tucker? see his little fa- Tucker, the Tuckmeister. Yeah, so I, I don't see any of them losing their jobs. Johnny Cass. Uh, from the Chicago Tribune, has been saying outrageous right-wing drivel for as long as I can remember. And he was, you know, the closest they came was moving him to the editorial page uh, from page two. He was on page two for 20 years. Yeah, you're right. You're right. A lot of these people do get promoted. But the thing is, like, 
it's just that people are able to say stuff about them. And it's the first time they're, they're being criticized. I think that's what it is. And people are like saying, hey, I don't like you, what you're saying. And that's what gets them angry. And then, you know, people complain about them. And so, yeah, but it's like more of a social thing. Like, you know, yeah, John Cass gets kicked to the back of the paper and he'll think that's a cancel. Like, you know, it's like these just just like the fact that society is changing and that people are calling things out doesn't mean that, you know, it was right from the first thing. It's like sexual harassment. People sat there and let sexual harassment kind of run rampant for a long time. And now that, you know, Me Too is happening, people are like, oh, no, why are why are people making such a big deal about it? I mean, because it is a big deal and you're getting all these men are freaking out because they're getting called out for doing things that weren't supposed to be cool back then. You know, people always talk about like, Oh, it was a different time. No, it was wrong then. And it's wrong now. The only difference is that people are saying stuff about it and they can't handle the fact that they're being questioned. And so that's what I think gets them all riled up because people start talking about them. Their name starts trending and trending on Twitter and everybody, you know, the fact that they're being criticized and anybody's calling them out really gets them wild up. Yeah, no, they get no one cries like a right winger. Just, just to use your example, they move cast from page two to the. You said put him in the back. That's where Eric Zorn, who's like been like the more or less liberal guy in the Sun on the Tribune, they allow one liberal guy. That's where he's been for his whole career. I never see Eric crying. I never saw Eric Zorn go, "Oh, boo hoo hoo me!" They stuck me in the back, but they put cast in the back. It's cancel culture. <laughs> Come on. Come on, right wingers! You guys are a bunch of babies. That's all. You know it's true. You're crying like babies. All. I, I. This is not a sports podcast, but who cries more, LeBron James in a basketball about fouls, or right wingers when it comes to being canceled? I think the right wingers cry more than LeBron James. Uh, all right. Now, speaking of cancel culture, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, Emily Wilder, before we leave her, she's like a really talented reporter. Hope she gets a good gig and she can move on because it's ridiculous that they use some old tweet against her. And she probably wasn't even going to cover the Middle East anyway, Ramadi. It's not like they're going to send her to Jerusalem to be the Middle East correspondent or something. Yeah, I think she'll get a job. A lot of people are tweeting, hire her, hire her. And like, it's, it's like she's. I, I started following her yesterday. She had like four thousand or five thousand followers, and by the end of the night, she had like eleven thousand followers. So I think she's getting a lot of support. Uh, that's good. By the way, as I told uh, Romano, and Romano breaks all these stories to me. By the way, she's she's uh, keeps me uh, up on the Twitter stuff. And so when she broke the story to me, I read about it. I go, oh, well, may- maybe Emily Wilder can come to Chicago, get a job covering City Hall for the Tribune, and not get invited to a uh, uh, be an interview Lori Lightfoot um, since she doesn't qualify in that front. All right, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to uh, Lori, uh, but before we do, let's not. We're on the general subject of cancel culture. I saw the article in the New York Times about Sinead O'Connor. I sent it to you immediately. You had already read it. Why did I think I would scoop you on this one? Um, fascinating story about someone from your generation, really. I think I think of her as sort of a, a Generation X icon. Uh, tell folks how she got canceled and uh, the ramifications in her life, because I thought it was a very fascinating uh, and very revealing story of how we accept quote-unquote, elements of cancel culture all the time without calling it out uh, and uh, and then only realize later, oh, yeah, if we realize it all. Go ahead, Romano. Yeah, so, yeah, Sinead O'Connor, she's a few years older than me, but I do remember when she hit the scene, um, me and my older sister saw her in a magazine, and, you know, I remember we were like, wow, she looks great. Like, she has no hair, and she still looks so great. I remember that was the, that was me and my sister's takeaway when we saw our picture of her. 
And then, you know, we heard her songs and we were just like blown away. I think she was only 21 at the time. I was in my teens. And, you know, she was on a, you know, the fast track. She was rising um, very, very, everybody loved her. I mean, I think people still do. Um, you know, so then all of a sudden she was on Saturday Night Live one uh, year. This was the early 90s. And she had a picture of the Pope. And she basically, I forgot what exactly she said, but she said something, I think she said something about the silence in the Catholic Church. And she was talking about the um, sexual abuse scandals in the that Catholic Church. That's what she was alluding to. But after she sang her song, she ripped a picture of the Pope. And uh, a lot of people were offended, which which I understand to a certain extent. But so at the same time, you have to remember, I so I was in college and I was interning at CNN. And uh, so a couple of years before that, the Salman Rushdie scandal happened. Salman Rushdie, I know you guys call him Salman Rushdie, but he's basically a writer from India who wrote a book. And there was a passage, <laughs> there was a passage <laughs> in their satanic verses that... No, but I, I just have to say, I just have to, I have to interrupt one thing. It's so funny because I'm always butchering pronunciation name and Ramana's correcting him, which is sort of like my father brings back memories of my father because Chicago is called Goethe Street and it's a German. It's, it's Goethe. It's my father. Being, it's Goethe. I go, dad, nobody calls it Goethe. That reminds me um, when, uh, when we were younger, you're one of your frequent guests, Samina Mustafa, who was always smarter than me and my friends, but you know, everybody calls it Devon Avenue. And she's like, you know, it's actually supposed to be Devon. And I'm like, oh, really? And she goes, yeah, because it's probably <laughs> named after something British. So it's not Devon, it's Devon. And so anyway, going off the track here. But anyway, like, like a couple years ago, so a couple years before the Sinead O'Connor thing, the Salman Rushdie controversy happened. And I'm not saying that they're similar, but they're similar in the way that what Salman Rushdie wrote could be seen as offensive to a lot of Muslim people. And I'm not saying the death threat was right, but people were offended. And then everybody's like, what's wrong? He should be able to write whatever he wants. That's fine. Okay. But then when Sinead O'Connor ripped up the picture of the Pope, the same people who were screaming freedom of the press and look how brave Salman Rushdie is, they're like, I can't believe she did that. And then, you know, Sinead O'Connor, like maybe two weeks after she, or a couple of weeks after she appeared on SNL, it was really, she went to a Bob Dylan like tribute concert and everybody booed her and she like ended up crying and, and she was pretty much blacklisted. I mean, people made fun of her. Frank Sinatra said things and that was okay. And I, I remember just being a Muslim American at the time, just finding it very ironic that everybody was calling Muslims overly sensitive. And I'm not talking about the ones who want to kill someone mercy, but people who are just like, well, this was offensive to me. Um, and, you know, people telling us to grow up, but then it was okay for like, you know, people because they identified more with Catholicism. Oh, you know, we, we, this, she is being, uh, you know, she's being obnoxious. We don't have to like, you know, we can boo her if we want to. And I'm like, it's just a double standard. And I felt, I said that, oh, so basically I was telling, I was talking to this other guy that was an intern at CNN. I'm like, why is that okay? Like, why is okay to say stuff about Muslims? But when somebody does something about Catholic, and he was a Catholic guy too. And he's like, well, you're, he told me I was being a typical minority at the time, but, and we ended up being friends, this person that became friends with him. But um, at the time I was just like, well, I just think it's a double standard. That's, that's just my opinion. And so I did feel bad for Sinead O'Connor because I was like, well, here's one person that's being put on this pedestal for bringing freedom of speech. And it's okay to offend a certain group of people. So it's okay to offend the others. But when it offends you, it's wrong. So, you know, Shane O'Connor, like, she never, she was always popular. People always loved her music. But 
you know, she kind of, you know, she had mental health struggles. I don't know if you remember a couple of years back, she she was in Womet, um, for, um, she was living in Womet at a friend's house. And, uh, I think she almost had killed herself and she ended up at a hotel in Morton Grove, not too far from where my sister lives. So we were, we all kind of thought that was cool that Sinead O'Connor was living amongst us, but, you know, she had mental health struggles and, you know, we we're talking a little bit about Muslims before and right now we were, you know, she ended up converting to Islam. So it all connecting. So, you know, she mentions she mentions that in her story, you know, in, in the New York Times story. So it was interesting. And, you know, she was talking about um, how she was treated as a woman. And then there's this whole I remember. And, you know, she talks about this interaction she had with Prince, where she said Prince wasn't very nice to her and actually hit her. And I remember I remember at the time when she's saying nothing compares to you. Like a few years later, she said that, you know, Prince treated her really bad. And I didn't think anything of it, but then she's, you know, she has this memoir coming out. That's where the New York Times interview happened. And she basically talks about it. She said, I always said I'd talk about this when I was an old lady. And here I am, I'm an old lady, so I'm going to talk about it. So, you know, Prince obviously isn't alive to talk about his side, but, you know, she was mistreated by a lot of people, I think. Um, When you just listen to her stories, the way people treated her. And, you know, I think the article kind of points out that if Me Too if Me Too was a thing in the early 90s, she probably wouldn't have been treated the same way. Like, it was okay. People made fun of her. I don't know. Like, you know, it, it's just that I think people would kind of be more supportive of her. And she talks a little bit about, I don't know, you didn't see the Britney Spears documentary, but it's actually very telling when you watch that documentary. And this is just a few years ago, the way Britney Spears was treated by the press. And, uh, you know, she used to date Justin Timberlake and he would totally make fun of her if they broke up and everybody would just kind of laugh about it. And, and, you know, he would be the victim and everything. And when it really, she kind of was the one that was the victim. So I think um, the Sinead O'Connor kind of makes you think back and realize that she was treated unfairly. But I do remember at the time, I thought she was treated unfairly a lot differently than I think she would have if she was a man or did something else completely different. I got to say, Romana, that um, this is a tough one, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because if you're an artist or a critic or a columnist or somebody who, uh, you know, has a platform, uh, and you use that platform to articulate something that's controversial, you're going to get blowback. Of course. You're going to get it. It's just if you've uh, – okay, so you have to expect it. It's, sometimes it go the blowback goes too far. I think in the case of Rushdie, Salman, yeah, that's good. Salman yeah, Salman, whatever yeah. I call him, <laughs> uh, I think it went too far to put uh, to order a hit on him. Uh, but he, you know, he puts it out there. He's going to get it. Philip Roth, a big fan of Philip Roth, but he he's written a lot of misogynistic novels, novels that deal with all kind of anti-Semitic themes. I mean, uh, raise the specter of of uh, stereotypical Jews. So he's going to, he, he, you're going to get it. And so I, I'm not saying that Sh- Sinead O'Connor uh, should not have expected blowback for ripping up a picture of the Pope on a national television show. But for a guy like Frank Sinatra, I think I said this to you, who, whose signature song is I did it my way to criticize her. That's what I'm like. That's the utter hypocrisy right here it's like and i had this argument with our good friend tom McNamee. like he was we were way way back when i was still at the sun times we we're in the little bubble and he was talking about a cancel culture and and i'm, I'm like it, everybody wants to cancel stuff when 
They're offended, just like you're saying. So Frank Sinatra was offended because she ripped up a picture of the Pope, and the, clearly the Pope means a lot to him. But what about your behavior, Frank Sinatra? You did it my way, you know, rough up women when you want to, sleep around when you want to, betray this woman, that woman, you know, hang out with mobsters. And then it's like, well, I did it my way. Oh, well, she's just doing it her way. Can't you just show some love for her doing it her way, you know? I, that's the part that gets, I guess, as always, it's the hypo- hypocrisy. I don't know. Didn't Madonna say something, too? And it's like she's the one that was always pushing the button when it came to the Catholic Church and, like, dancing around with the cross. And, you know, she had the she had the crosses burning in her video. Um, and that was offensive to a lot of African-Americans. You know what I mean? But she wasn't canceled the same way Sinead O'Connor was. No, it's... Uh... You, you will never have an honest discussion of uh, cancel culture because, first of all, the phrase itself is so BS, and it's just a political tool used by Republicans uh, to fire up their base. Uh, the only thing that irritates me is when I see good liberals. They- <laughs> well, ben, you know, they have a point. Uh, we're really intolerant of other people. I'm just saying, Ben. Come on, liberals. Don't be so dumb. All right, sorry. That was me now. Romana. All right, let's move to uh, local stuff. We've I knew this would happen, Romana. I, I predicted it. I said once we were done talking about cancel culture and Emily Wilder in the Middle East, we wouldn't have a lot enough a lot of time to talk about uh, our favorite mayor, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, so much Lori news. Uh, <laughs> I'm just looking at the first item, Lori's Lollapalooza commercial. Wow, um, what a piece of work that was. Lori, two years in, Lori and black reporters. I'll allow you to pick which of those three you want to discuss first. Uh, Lori, two years in, Lori's Lollapalooza commercial, or Lori and her uh, reporter of color uh, statement. Your thought, Whichever one you want to deal with first, I'll let you go. Go. Well, we can talk about the Lollapalooza video. So <laughs> I know they were trying to be cool, but. Uh, so, like, yeah, the Lollapalooza, as everybody knows, this week, Lollapalooza announced this lineup. They're going to have a regular Lollapalooza like they did in the years past. It's going to be full capacity, but I think you have to prove you ha- you're vaccinated. And I have to tell you, Ben, when I was in college, uh, that was the first Lollapalooza. And the Lollapalooza at that time, it was a traveling thing. It was like an all-day concert, and, you know, it went to different cities. And, uh, you know, I was 20. And, you know, just to show you how, um, what kind of immigrant parents I had, I mean, I was 20 and I, I still had to ask my parents to go to these things. So I'm just letting you know, I did not go to Lollapalooza, the original one, but all the cool (laughs) kids did. (laughs) And uh, so then like years later, Lollapalooza became the staple three, four day event in Chicago. And it's been going on for years. And it's, it's like I start, I took my uh, niece the first time when she was 16. My older sister told me and my younger sister to take her. She's like, she really wants to go to Lollapalooza for her 16th birthday. I don't want her going alone. So I started going for a few years. So I know all about the Lala crowd. They're very young and it's the place to be. And now with social media, it's like, I don't even think care, kids care about the music. I think they just want to be there to show everybody that they were at Lala. And it's like kids from all over the place, like, there's kids who've never been to the big city and you can tell it's like, Oh, I'm like, you're not from here. So it's, it's an interesting scene. It's good for kids. Um, I knew I was too old when the only people I would see, I, I would see some friends who would go to watch it, but then I would see old reporters who were recovering it as reporters and photographers. And my niece, all of a sudden she would know every <laughs> other person that was a Lollapalooza. They're all people from our college. 
So um, it's starting up again. And so Lori Lightfoot put this video out and she's listening to music with Dr. Awadi and they're talking about Lollapalooza and, you know, how it's cool. And, you know, then, then they kind of flash it back. She's on the phone and she calls uh, Perry Farrell. He's the guy from Jane's Addiction who runs Lollapalooza. And so she talks to him and then they're like, you know, rocking on, you know, listening to music. So, and then at one point, uh, Dr. Awadi's like clothes change into like Lala gear. And it totally wasn't Lala gear. So I, I show that to my younger sister. My younger sister's like, making me watch this would m- makes me not want to go to Lollapalooza. <laughs> it, it makes me realize how uncool it is now. My older sister saw it. And um, I don't know if my, my brother didn't have any comment. But my older sister thought it was kind of cute. She's like, it's kind of cute. Like old people, you know, trying to be trying to be funny. So my older sister thought it was a good effort. I, I thought it was a good effort too. But it did make me chuckle, I have to admit. But it's it's all in good fun. I think everybody's ready to go out and do things. So I think as long as it's safe and people can prove they're vaccinated, you know, all all the more good fun. Um, I've actually been to Lollapalooza so often, like I've seen a lot of those acts that are already like coming. But now I look at the acts and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm too old for this. I don't want to see any of these people. <laughs> well, well, first of all, yeah, I was always too old for it. But uh, but I there was a. Mark Garino, who comes on the show from time to time, uh, put a statement out on Facebook. I actually saw, I can't believe this. I never look at social media, but I happen to look at this. I saw this and I got to go, oh, Mark, that was pretty astute. Get your thoughts on this. Uh, so he, he's really into music you know, on a level that, that, that way beyond me. He fought, like, I, I, you know, I stopped listening to music, new music after 79. So, uh, which really irritates the hell out of your husband. Anyway, so um, he wrote that, Lala, just to your point, that the people who make money off of Lollapalooza have come to the conclusion they could put anybody on stage. They could put Ben Jarofsky on stage, just standing there playing the ukulele and thousands and thousands of young suckers. I mean, young people from uh, throughout the mid Midwest would come just to hang w- with their friends, get drunk, smoke reefer, uh, and be away from their parents and just luxuriate and, and all that, you know, and it doesn't, they don't even care. So, the Lollapalooza guy, why should I spend money getting the first name act when I could just put Ramana and Ben up? And uh, <laughs> can you imagine if like, we did this show? and Well, here we are doing a live remote. Uh, Ramana Hussein from the Chicago Sun-Times and Lollapalooza. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> anyway, um, so that was his theory, that they're just putting any old thing out there because, uh, you know, the young dummies, as opposed to the old dummies who elect the politicians that run our city will just show up anyway. What's your thoughts about his theory? I, I think I saw the same Facebook status because when I saw it, I was shake, nodding my head the whole time. So it's definitely true. I think they don't have to. I mean, the biggest headliners, I think, were the Foo Fighters and then Miley Cyrus. And I don't want to see Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus, I'm not a fan of. And yeah, so I, I think a lot of the young kids, they probably watched her when she was a Disney star. But yeah, the, I think the Foo Fighters were the biggest name. They always put in a couple bands like that appeal to like Gen Xers like me. And then sometimes they throw in, they do, they do. And then they throw in a couple of baby boomer acts. Like one year I went and the cars were there. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, but I was like excited about that. And so once in a while, I think, I don't know if I, I could be misquoting the lineup, but I don't know. Is, isn't Journey on the lineup this year? Journey might be on the lineup. Steve Perry doesn't sing for them. It's another guy, but Someone told me Journey was on the lineup, but I'm not sure about that. So don't quote me on it. But yeah, they, they always throw. Well, you know what? They're, that that may explain why they sing the Journey song in that Lori Lightfoot commercial. 
Maybe, maybe. Wow. Okay. There's. Yeah. Uh, Paul McCartney played Lollapalooza once. Yeah, I was actually I had bronchitis that year, and I didn't go. I didn't get tickets, and I was so bummed because everybody was. I was looking at my Twitter feed, and everybody's talking about great Paul McCartney was, and I was sad. And but then I saw him two years later, and I was happy again. I, I love the Beatles. I admit I, that's one. The, that's a big boomer man, but they are one of my. They're my favorite bands of all time. Because me and my older sister used to watch the cartoons when we were little, and that's how we got to like the Beatles. And so I'll always love the Beatles. Uh, I, well, can I just make a comment here? I believe, speaking uh, for boomers everywhere, as I do, that the bo- the Beatles transcends boomerism. Like I think the Beatles' music is so universally poppy and fun and just beady. You know, it's got that nice little beat that you just got to kind of, I just think it transcends boomerism. So the kids will be listening to it 20 years ago. I believe that. I think it's one of the only acts uh, well, make your uh, your beloved, he's getting a, a mention. Mick Dumkey and I share passion for uh, what's going on, the album by Marvin Gaye. And Mick texted me today, he goes, it's the 50th anniversary of the release of Marvin Gaye. That album that album will be listened to. I predict people will be listening. It's the most profound album that came out in my lifetime. And I believe people will be listening to that a hundred years now. Stevie wonder a hundred years from now, even though these are boomeracks and the Beatles. That's my prediction. What's your thoughts about that prediction? Romano? Yeah, I agree. I mean, Mick and I, you know, they always say you're more, if you like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, there's one band you like better. Mick likes the Rolling Stones better. And I totally disagree. I say the Beatles, I mean, I know they both culturally appropriated, but I just feel like the Rolling Stones did more cultural appropriation with their sound. At least the Beatles had like, they culturally appropriated for sure. But at a certain point, they did have like, they experimented with different things. The Rolling Stones, I like, I like the Rolling Stones, but I always disagree with Mick. I'm like, sorry, I know a lot of people think it's cooler to like the Rolling Stones, but I'll always be a Beatles person. Yeah, no, I'm a Beatles person, too. All right, now let's get to Lori and uh, her. <laughs> it set off a firestorm. We had a blast talking about it the other day. Uh, Atibu Buchanan was on the show. We had a good time with this. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, uh, the, the word, I think, was it Romana that told me about it? Once again, I think it was Romana who broke the news to me. Uh, you go, <laughs> classic. Ben, I know you don't see this because it's on Twitter, but it was Mary Ann Ahern's tweet that she had been denied uh, the r- privilege of interviewing Lori Lightfoot uh, uh, for about a two-year, on, on her two-year uh, record um, because uh, they were uh, only uh, granting uh, interviews to uh, black or brown reporters. And then Lori Lightfoot came up with sort of a clarification that she was giving priority. That she wasn't, Marianne Ahern would get her moment, maybe, uh, but she would have to wait until uh, a black reporters got their opportunity and, uh, report- and then it became reporters of color. Uh, so that set off. Uh, <laughs> reporters. Everybody's tweeting now. I'm a reporter and I'm going to tweet. Anyway, what was your, uh, <laughs> what was your thoughts, Romana? So I have to tell you a lot of journalists of color are, have been talking behind closed door about this issue And um, I can only tell you what I feel. Number one, I think it's a total publicity stunt on behalf of Lori Lightfoot. And although I do think um, politicians shouldn't be picking and choosing who speaks with them, 
I didn't have a problem with this. And a lot of people would probably say, well, that's because you're brown. And no, it's not. It's um, even though, like I said, even though I just found the responses of many white journalists really telling, you know, they're getting all excited and angry about it. And I'm like, listen, it's only for this two year anniversary, like, you know, discussion, you can have access to Lori Lightfoot all you want. (laughs) And, you know, so I don't know, I, it did kind of make me laugh. It did make me chuckle a lot of the white people getting all angry about being ignored. And I'm like, well, welcome to my world. Um, Being a black and brown journalist, you pretty much get ignored for most of your career. And, you know, it's like, and it did bring up the point. I think one of the interesting things is that it did bring up the point that a fact that our newsrooms aren't that diverse. And this has been an issue that I've been talking about for like years, ever since I started in journalism. (laughs) And, you know, it became hip post George Floyd for all these white reporters to talk about diversity in newsroom. And, and it makes me kind of chuckle again, because it's like, when I was pushing for it, you did not sit there and support me. But I'm glad now that it's hip, you're part of this conversation. So I do, I do think that it was good in that that triggered the conversations about diversity in the newsrooms and what a lack of, you know, diversity there is in newsrooms. So I just thought the response and the outrage. And then I saw that um, your buddy Tulsi Gabbard recently just post tweeted something about Lori Lightfoot. She's anti-white and uh, needs to be needs to resign. And I was it made me laugh. That also made me chuckle. A lot of things are making me chuckle in in an ironic way. And it's like, okay, of all the things Lori Lightfoot is going to resign for, it's not because she's anti-white. Sorry. You know, so Again, I I just think like white people getting all like angry about, you know, being left out of the conversation is just very funny. I'm like, you guys are so used to your white privilege. It's like, it's just showing this conversation and this like, this um, topic just showed how much white privilege a lot of white people have. And they don't realize by them sounding off and the way they sound off. It's like, okay, your white privilege is showing, you know, they're white, your your white fragility, fragility, whatever. So it's, it, it's, it was a fun thing. I didn't, I didn't, I was, I didn't take offense to it. Um, you know, Fran Spielman, obviously she's a white woman, you know, she's going to have access to Lori Lightfoot and she'll go after her <laughs> when she wants to, she will, she will have that access. So it's, it's for the two year anniversary, which a lot of people find, um, it's kind of like, you know, they're they're trying to make those kind of like puff pieces, which is kind of wrong because we saw that the tribe sent a reporter. I think, you know, I don't know if that was her thinking. A lot of people felt like, oh, she thinks that, you know, people of color are going to give her a pass. And that's not true, because if anybody's not going to give her a pass, it's people of color. And you sent over that the tribe article, which was uh, very interesting and very compelling um, to me. That was part of my homework today. And, you know, that that shows you that no, not everybody's going to give her a pass. And if that's what people think she's doing, it's not true. So it it was a lot, it was fun. And I I just thought it just showed what showed just like the the psychology of a lot of white reporters and their privilege, just like them sounding off. It it was, it was, it was amusing. That was a great riff. And I got to tell you, um, I'm going to now read for everybody. Tulsi's uh, again, Romana sent me this as well. Uh, <laughs> Tulsi's lost her mind. Uh, so th- it, it's prefaced with, uh, what, it, what is it pre- prefaced with? Something like, uh, your girl. <laughs> so, uh, your girl. Okay. Oh my God. Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah. I've seen the light. 
I actually, she was never quote unquote my girl. I'm just putting that out there. But uh, here's here's the uh, the tweet. The and Ramana, I think Tulsi's lost her mind. Mayor Lightfoot's blatant anti-white racism is abhorrent. I call upon President Biden, Kamala Harris, and other leaders of our country of all races to join me in calling for Mayor Lightfoot's resignation. Our leaders must condemn all racism, including anti-white. Uh, yeah, I could just see Joe Biden and Kamala Harris having the joint press conference. Uh, we we're calling on Lori Lightfoot to resign because Tulsi made a very good point. <laughs> you know, my first reaction, and you know it's true because I sent it to Ramon. Who wants to interview her anyway? <laughs> I know. But, uh, whatever. Anyway, I uh, uh, she's certainly not going to be as honest and as compelling as Ramana Hussein is, that's for sure. Uh, and by the way, and I say this, and and this is I'm probably going to say this more uh, as the week goes on. I think about the second year anniversary. I may write this. I was a sucker. I was taken in. And uh, one of the good things that was uh, Bella Boz who, from Tribe pointed out is how Lori Lightfoot's a very astute politician, and she understands exactly who she's talking to at any given time, and she knows how to tailor what she says. And so as I always point out, when she went into the hideout stage with all these liberals and lefties, and it was Mick Dumpkin and myself on the stage, she just told us exactly what she wanted to hear. And afterwards, I'm like, oh, my God, she's so good. I think I'll go vote for her because <laughs> I'm a Chicagoan after all these years. And Mick, of course, is more cynical. If he if he smoked cigarettes, he would put out a cigarette and go. Ah, it's just a politician. But I fell for it. I admit it, Romana. I fell for it. I voted for. Her. Yes, I did. Not really proud of it right now. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, I urge everybody to check out that uh, article by Bella Boz in the Tribe. All right, we're running out of time here, Romana. Um, we'll close with your recommendation. I you know what? Let's just talk about it. The one show we're both watching, Mayor of East Town. Uh, it's the one thing that, uh, I've in my life, I think Romana, where I've been actually in tune with America as they watch a show, as it drops week to week, first time ever. Usually I'm like five years behind the time and I'm thoroughly enjoying it, even though it's a pretty stupid show. What's your thoughts of mayor of East town? I, I like it. Um, I always, I'm watching it with Mick. So we're still one show behind. So even when it's like a one show per week thing, it's like, I'm still behind because Mick isn't a binge watcher like I am. Like he doesn't watch TV on weekdays. So if we miss Sunday show, we have to wait till the next. Like I think we'll watch the episode five, which I heard is a shocker today. Um, but I, I like it. Um, I, I My younger sister started watching it when the first show dropped and she recommended it to me. She goes, it's pretty good. And Kate Winslet's in it. And then I Mick usually doesn't like watching the same shows I do, or he, he watches fewer shows than I do. So I just asked him if he wanted to watch it and he did. And he, he, he likes it. He does think parts of it are a little ridiculous. And, you know, him being from like a smaller town in Michigan, he always has to point out like, why do they make people from small towns, you know, look like this or be like this. And I'm like, well, not that I, since I'm more of a city slicker than he is, or I grew up near a city. I'm always like, well, they kind of are like that, aren't they? And so, you know, I, I'm okay with, I'm okay with certain things in the show and he, he kind of has issues with certain things, but no, he likes it too. I, I think Kate Winslet's a great actress. So I enjoy watching her, um, in that role. She's, uh, it's based in Philadelphia, right. Or the East coast somewhere. But I think, she, I, I think uh, people, outside of yeah, yeah rural, rural Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> people talk about her accent and whether it's accurate or not. And the guy who plays like the, you know, 
the the author that she's dating. He's also he's he's Guy Pierce and he's an Australian actor. And I, you know, I thought I thought they did a good job with him, like an author who still thinks he's cool with like long hair that's totally out of date. I I thought I thought they that character was great, but no, I am enjoying it. I mean, you know, you're all you know every week we're like, is that the killer or is that the killer? And you know, it's going to be like everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, you know. So and they try to make someone look like they're the killer, but they're not, and so. It's interesting. I, I like it so far. It's a good like you know we're you know now they're all vaccinated. We're probably going to be watching le- less Netflix, but I still think we're kind of cautious. So it's a good show to watch when you're not doing as many activities as you were doing before. But I am do I have to let you know that I'm going to be going out my summer. I told Mick already. I don't care what you're doing, but I'm going to go out a lot. <laughs> so I go you know I go I'm going to go out with my friends. I'm going to go. I've already I already have a schedule for tomorrow and today and. No, I mean, I'm going to be safe, but Mick is, Mick is more of a homebody than I am. And I'm not going to do anything crazy, but I'm just going to go out with my friends and my siblings and, you know, go out to brunch more, go out to dinner more. And so that's my plan then. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I'm with you. Um, so for instance, uh, I started bowling again and on Wednesday, I went over to my, uh, couple of my best friends, uh, to watch the, uh, Warriors Lakers game and we got chicken. It was just like old times. Now I'm doing a bike riding club with my bowling buddies. We're trying to get in shape over the summer. So, uh, I'm with you, Ramon. I'm slowly making it out. And I just, I just want to tell you about mayor of East town. I did a little, uh, story for the reader newsletter about mayor of East town. And I went on a tangent. You knew where I was going about all the, uh, non-American actors, who somehow or other the producers of America feel compelled to fill these roles that could easily be filled with not at all. Oh, Kate Winslet is unbelievable. Like there's no woman in the state of Pennsylvania who could be doing what she's doing. So I'm just get, get, had, a, and I was, I thought everybody would rip me, you know, Oh, you're Donald Trump, but no, I couldn't believe how many people were like, yeah. And you didn't mention this actor in this because there's like four of them. Uh, so come on, Hollywood producers. Come on now. But she's like a really good actress, so I think that brings people to watch it more. That's just my... Uh, Who do you think would be good in that role? Gwyneth Paltrow? <laughs> Touche. Wait, isn't yeah, she seriously. British too? <laughs> yeah, she does a British accent, but I don't think she would do as good of a job. Wait, time out. Is Gwyneth Paltrow British? No, she's American. Oh, okay. She's played British. Uh, uh, okay, British. uh... Jodie Foster 20 years ago. Yeah, that was 20 years ago. Would have killed it in that role. Killed it in that role. Okay? But, you know, I'm at a disadvantage here. I don't know a lot of the young actresses, so I'm really... You you threw that that one at me, and I'm like, because I don't really know a lot of them. But uh, I I still haven't gotten over... um, They put a Brit in the role as uh, Fred Hampton. I don't know if I'll ever get over that. Uh, All right, Ramana, it's a, a pleasure talking to you. Uh, you tell it like it is and um, stay safe and sound, even with you going out. All right. Just stay safe. Okay. That's all I ask you. All right. You too. All right. That's a great Ramana Hussein. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 